Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 16, verse 16 through verse 33. Then the men set out from there and they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whither they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am or I who, I, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the, the righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will, not, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus name, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love towards Abraham and all, all of his descendants. God, we just thank you for this word and we pray that God, you would uh, open our hearts and our minds to hear from you. And may you use your servant Brandon to, to preach your word and, and the words that we hear uh, that are your, are your words. Father, we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. A few years ago, um, more than a few actually, uh, I, I was asked to drop a friend off at the airport. And we set out, we drove to uh, LAX, and uh, that was a bit of a drive. Uh, when we got there, uh, you know, in those days, uh, we were allowed to go inside even if you didn't have a ticket. And so uh, I parked the car. 
I helped him with his luggage. We went inside. We went through security. We went to his gate. And there we sat and we waited while uh, we waited for it to be time to board. And while we were there, we talked about a lot of things about the trip he was taking, about what he was going to do when he was there, about things that had happened recently in our lives. We had a good time. And then the time came. His his row was called, he, was, he got up to go, and I wished him a good journey. And he, you know, he went into the little hallway and was gone. And I, um, you know, like a little kid, I waited until the plane pulled away from the, from the terminal. Um, and then I went back to my car. Now, I, I like to think that, that my friend, uh, he had felt valued because I spent some time with him. I, you know, nowadays you go to the airport, you just drop people off at the curb. But if I'm being honest, what it was really about was I wanted to spend more time with my friend. I wanted that time because he was going to be absent, and I wanted to spend all the time I could with him while he was present. And I think that's what we see here in our passage where Abraham takes some time to journey with these three men as they set out uh, after having a meal with him. Of course, we know that these are actually two angels and the Lord himself who, who spent time uh, with Abraham. But he wanted to provide some companionship with them. Abraham was a friend of God. And we're about to see that this identity of of being a friend, it comes with an amazing amount of privilege. And there's a lot of talk these days about uh, identity and privilege and power and the effects that these kind of things have had on different kinds of people throughout history. I think that our text today is a good reminder to believers that we are to find our identity in the in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're to find our power through the Holy Spirit as we uh, embrace our weaknesses and rely upon him and our dependence on him. And I think as we, as we navigate this broken world, right, trying to discover what our role is in life and we're trying to help others, and, you know, we're, we're striving to make the world a better place. I think it's important that we remember that God has already determined his plan for his creation. And as his friends, we are only going to find peace and satisfaction when we embrace the way of the Lord. So our big idea today is that friendship with God has its privileges. And I see three great privileges in our text today. And so we're just going to go through them uh, one by one. The first is this, the first great privilege, revelation and illumination. Genesis 18, verses 17 to 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. See, we, here we're seeing that God, God wasn't just out for a stroll or stopping by to visit Abraham. He's actually on a kind of search and destroy mission. 
in which he's going to bring fiery judgment down upon five cities of the plain, most notably Sodom and Gomorrah. And and we see here that Abraham can see these cities from where he's encamped. He can look down on them. And I think the Lord could have just gone on his way and then allowed Abraham to learn of their destruction as he watched in horror from afar. But that's not what God did. See, God uh, explained to his friend what he was about to do. God had a purpose for Abraham's life. He, He felt it was important that Abraham know and have some kind of understanding of what was going to happen and why. We have to remember Abraham did not have any scriptures. Everything that he knew about God came from his own personal experience and those times where God had given him some kind of special revelation. But it's always been God's practice to include those that he called in the knowledge of his ways. The the, uh, prophet Amos writes in chapter 3, The Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophet, the prophets. Now, nowadays, we don't have men or women who serve as prophets. And this is because Jesus is our prophet and and he's never going to die and we don't need another one. But what he teaches has been revealed to us in the scriptures. Now, I think it's really cool that Jesus came and spent some time with Abraham and had a meal with him. And I I cannot wait for the day when I get to experience that. But I'm telling you, if Abraham is aware of what's happening right now, he's a little bit jealous of us. And he's thinking, I wish I had had the scriptures back in my day. And not only do we have the word, but we can understand it. Like John Calvin made this observation that it's the peculiar privilege of the church to know what the divine judgment means. And what he's saying is that having the word is good, but it's only because we have the Holy Spirit that we can believe it and understand the truth of it. And there's a theological term for this. It's, set, it's called illumination. So think about just like how turning on a light allows us to find our way in a dark place. The Holy Spirit illumines our minds to help us find our way in God's Word. We know this to be true because we've all experienced this thing where we share a verse with someone who's not yet a believer, and they don't find this verse to be as inspiring or helpful as we did at all. Or we we all know of, of families where there's more than one child, and and one They both hear the same gospel growing up. They both have the same exposure to God's word, and yet one becomes a believer, and one finds the whole thing to be nonsense. 1 Corinthians 1.8 gives us some insight. It says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And Ephesians 1.17 and 18 says, The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation 
in knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. See, we're friends of God, and, and because of that, he desires for us to know him well. And so he's given us this book, and he's provided us with the Holy Spirit as our guide to understanding the way of God. So my, my question to you today is, what are you going to do with your privilege? What, what are you going to do with this book? Now, maybe, maybe this seems like nonsense to you when you read it. Maybe you don't understand how Christians can believe what this says. And if that sounds like you, that's okay. But, but here's my challenge to you. Make sure that you give it an honest chance before you reject it. Jesus said this. He gives us a promise in Matthew 7. He says, ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And, the one, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. I, I believe if you, if you earnestly investigate the truth of God's word, he will reveal it to you. Try it. Pray and ask him to give you belief, to give you his spirit, to illuminate the truth of his word for you. Test his promise and see if he isn't faithful. But maybe you already believe what this says to be true. But maybe you find it difficult to develop a regular habit of, of reading it. Or, or maybe you read it all the time, but you, just, you aren't really finding as much joy in the pages the way you once did. And my challenge to you this morning is uh, repent. Repent of, of thinking of God's word as a chore or as a duty that has to be performed, a, a box that has to be ticked. Instead, think of God's word as a, as a conversation with a dear friend. Here's something that you can do this week. Have a meal with Jesus. Just take, set aside one meal. It could even just be a snack, but just some, one of your regular meals. Try to turn off all the distractions around you, TV and work and the kids, etc. Just have a meal with Jesus as you read and see if you don't find more joy there. So we have this great privilege of uh, illumination and revelation. The second great privilege is a purpose and a mission. Genesis 18, 19, for I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So God makes clear here that he has chosen Abraham, and he had a purpose for that. And his plan is that Abraham will teach his children the ways of God, but not only his children, also his household after him. You see, uh, God intends for Abraham to influence generations of people, not just his immediate family, generations, nations. And the key phrase here is the way of the Lord. 
I find it interesting that eventually when the church comes along, that the church of Jesus Christ was initially known as the way. See, what God begins in the life of Abraham, he continues throughout history until it becomes the church. Now, I hear uh, that we're living in a post-Christian culture. And, and I think that that's probably right. See, more and more people are growing up having never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have a distorted view of the church and what Christians are all about. And because of this, I've noticed there's been a surge of people who are trying to find and attach meaning to the purpose of their lives. You know, I watch a show a lot. It's called Shark Tank. I like Shark Tank. You know, people bring business ideas to investors and they try to get money. Uh, I like it because I, I love to see what people have invented. And I'm, I'm interested in this idea of mentoring. And, and honestly, I think the show is a good reminder that there are real people behind the products and services that we consume. People who have worked hard and risked a lot to build these businesses. But it seems that lately, no one is content with simply working hard and producing an excellent product and, and then providing it at a fair price. No, they feel like what they're doing is meaningless unless they attach it to some other worthy cause. So there's this sock company, and they give away a pair of socks uh, to homeless shelters for every pair that they sell. And, and there's another sock company, because sock people are super generous. There's another sock company that builds orphanages in India. Some businesses feed the hungry, and some support veterans, and some are all about low or at-risk uh, kids, and others are about adoption. There's no end of good causes. And don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that these aren't good causes. It's great that these people are helping people uh, as they start their businesses and, and that they're not only being motivated by greed. But isn't it interesting that this trend is coinciding with our post-Christian era? See, as a culture, we're no longer pursuing the way of God. And so we are desperately trying to infuse our culture with meaning and purpose. See, this is because God created us to be culture creators. It's one of the ways that we reflect the image of God. Before the fall, uh, before sin came into the world, God told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and have dominion over all of creation. He, he did not intend for them to stay in the garden, but he told them to fill the earth, starting families and, and building cities and nations and inventing things and creating things and starting businesses and, and establishing laws and and justice, and building economies. See, God's plan was that we would build culture, 
We would create culture. This is why theologians call this whole concept the cultural mandate. And then the fall happened. And it, it distorted our culture building, but it did not end it. Because God gave the same mandate to Noah after the flood. And, and here with Abraham, we see that, that he's calling his people to be about building culture as he clarifies his purpose for Abraham is to uh, command his children by doing righteousness and justice. Later, God will give Moses what we call the Shema. It's where God's people are charged with loving God with all their heart, soul, and might. And they're specifically told to diligently teach their children the ways of the Lord day and night. And then the way of God continues today as the Christian church. Our meaning and purpose comes from a Christ-centered life. His way includes the great commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, and might, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. The cultural mandate continues with the great commission that we see in Matthew 28 to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, Abraham's purpose that his descendants would, would be about doing righteousness and doing justice, that, that continues with us in the great commandments. And his calling to command his descendants to keep the way of the Lord well, that continues with us in the Great Commission. And this is a great privilege that believers, that friends of God, enjoy. See, our lives have a meaning and a purpose that does not change with the times. We have this revelation and illumination of, of God's Word, and it informs the way that we live. The world around us is, is battling to determine what is the cause of today. And they're trying to create a way to make the world a better place, but they want to do it on their own, without God, and without God's chosen instrument, His church. Will they affect positive change in the world? Uh, probably, maybe. God often uses what is intended for evil to accomplish His good purposes. But what is certain is that no matter how successful they may be, no one is going to find satisfaction for that yearning for meaning as long as they're rejecting the way of God. You know, those of us who, who keep the way of God, we have this satisfaction that leads to, to peace and joy, even when it seems that we are failing to create a God-honoring culture. So let me ask you this question. Are you striving to find meaning in your life apart from God? Are you, are you throwing yourself into the causes of the day without stopping to consider how they line up with God's revealed will? Are you following the way of a, of a political party or a social justice cause or a lifestyle or a trend? Or are you following Jesus. Ask yourself this question this week and then write down 
your thoughts. Where am I hoping to find meaning in my life? And then here's some things to think about as you write. How does this line up with what the Bible says about doing righteousness and doing justice and building culture? How does this incorporate the gospel as the solution for the challenges I face? And how does this involve God's chosen instrument, his church? After you've kind of thought about those things, my challenge to you is find someone you trust and share that with them. So we have this great privilege of revelation and illumination, and we have this great privilege of a purpose and a mission. There's one more privilege that I want to talk about, and the third great privilege is access to God through prayer. Genesis 18, 23 through 25. Then Abram drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We see here, right, God's revelation about what he is going to do to the cities of the plain. This is creating no small amount of concern for his friend Abraham. You know, in one sense, this is a very personal matter for Abraham because his nephew Lot lives in Sodom, and he just rescued Lot, and now here he is in peril again. But in another sense, I think that Abraham is just concerned for his neighbors. Five of the most prominent cities of the region are going to be destroyed. Now, no doubt he's heard of the sinfulness in those places, but his questions, they kind of tell us, like he's making this assumption that there's some righteous people in the mix. I don't think that Abraham is questioning God's judgment here. I think that he's seeking to understand God's way. But I also think that he's gravely mis, uh, or he's gravely underestimating how much sin is in his world. And when I really think about it, I find myself asking God similar questions. See, there's people in my life who don't yet believe in Jesus, and, and I've been praying for them for a long time. Why does God not draw them to himself? You know, to me, they seem like good people. They're nice people. And I know what the Bible says about our, our good deeds being like filthy rags before we come to know him. But when I think about the fact that these nice people may not go to heaven, I just can't help but feel that that's unfortunate. And so I'm questioning God, why have you not chosen this person? And I plead with God on their behalf, draw them to yourself, Lord. And so this bit of dialogue between Abraham and the Lord, it's very comforting to me. See, Abraham, I don't think he liked what the Lord was about to do. But they were friends. And he knew that God was not going to do anything unjust. So they talked it through. And 
I like the approach that Abraham took. He was so respectful. And he acknowledged what he believed about the righteousness of God. See, I think far too often when we pray, we pray as if we're, we have to overcome God's reluctance. It's like we're trying to convince a strict parent to bend the rules for us a little bit. But Abraham, he doesn't do that. He approaches God. He seizes upon God's willingness to spare the righteous. I came across a quote from a theologian named John J. Davis. He says this, Intercessory prayer is only effective when one realizes how awesome the judgment of God is. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, to pray effectively for lost souls if one is not convinced that lostness will ultimately result in literal, eternal punishment. So why do we struggle to pray effectively for those who are lost? See, we understand Romans 3 where it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And and we know that there's nothing that we can do in our own strength to restore broken relationship with God. And we believe the words of Jesus that, that sinners will go to eternal punishment in hell. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We believe these words of Jesus, and yet we know and we understand that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the answer. He lived that sinless life that we could not live, and he died to pay the penalty for our sin, which is death. And he has risen again, conquering death. We understand that that those who believe are restored to God because it says so in Romans 5 that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also know that those who will be saved were chosen by God. And we see that in Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. It says, even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And I think that this is where we so often fall into this trap of fatalism, right? If God has already made his choices, then there's nothing that we can do to change them. Why do we need to pray for the lost? They're either elect or they're not. And this, I think this affects how we pray about all kinds of things. We know that God has decreed that all things come to pass. We know that God is sovereign. We know that nothing escapes his notice. We know that nothing happens lest he permit it. Indeed, he causes everything to happen because he is holding together the very universe. And we know these things. So, Why would we pray for healing? Why would we pray for salvation? Why would we pray for the relief of those who are suffering? 
Well, in our current text, we can find out the outcome of Abraham's intercession with God. We, we skip ahead to Genesis uh, chapter 19, verse 29. It says this, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham. It's not that he saw Lot and said, oh, Lot's righteous, I'm going to spare him. No, he remembered Abraham. Scripture is telling us in no uncertain terms that the reason Lot was spared was because God remembered this conversation that he had with Abraham. He had promised Abraham that the righteous would not be swept away with the unrighteous, and he kept that promise. But this brings up a question for us, doesn't it? Would God have spared Lot if Abraham had not prayed? Or let's just ask it in a more general way. Does prayer really change anything? Well, I don't see how we can read Scripture and not conclude that prayer is a powerful act that definitely can change things. Just consider two verses from the book of James. James 4 says, You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James 5 tells us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Elijah had a nature like ours. That means he had a sin nature and he had a spirit nature and they were at war within him just like they are in us. But he also had Christ's imputed righteousness just as we have Christ's imputed righteousness. And it says that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And with Christ's perfect righteousness in us, our prayers are potent. You remember when the Israelites, they made that golden calf and they kind of they ticked God off, right? God wanted to wipe them out. This is what he says in Exodus 32. Uh, this is God speaking to Moses. He's, leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I might make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord and he said, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham. Remember your promises to him. And if we skip ahead to verse 14, we see the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Prayer changes things. Ian Bounds says this, that the great movements of God originate with and are shaped by the prayers of men. 
Prayer deals directly with God. He is pleased to order his policy and base his actions on the prayers of his saints. Prayer influences God greatly. Moses could not do God's great work, even though it was God commissioned without praying. Moses could not govern God's people and carry out the divine plans without having his censer full of the incense of prayer. The work of God cannot be done unless the fire and fragrance of prayer are always burning, ascending, perfuming. Now, I want to I wrap this up by sharing with you a story of prayer in my own life and in the life of New City Church. The one, one of the elders of this church, he, he has a daughter, and she collapsed one day at college. She went to the doctor, and nobody was really sure of what was wrong. And I remember one day before church, some of the elders, we, we came around her, we anointed her with oil, and we earnestly prayed for her healing. And I can't really remember how quickly it happened, but it was very soon after that, she had a series of strokes. And I, I couldn't believe it. You know, we rushed to the hospital to pray for her again and to be with our friend as he tried to help her. And we were literally pleading with God for her life. And I have to admit, I was pretty sure he was bringing her home. I didn't understand what God was doing. And there was this, this moment when her parents had to make a decision. See, their daughter had lost the ability to communicate. And it was one of those things that no parent should ever have to experience. Do you continue to keep trying life-saving measures, or do you let nature take its course? He told me, I just need her to be able to tell us what she wants. Well, Bill Golden and I, we just happened to be at a prayer conference at Mission to the World that day. And I shared with the people who were leading the conference what was happening. And they, they set aside their whole agenda and they put Bill and I in a couple of chairs and they all came around us and they started to pray. They were praying specifically that she would wake up and tell her father what she wanted. And no sooner did they stop praying than I got a text from my friend. And it, it said that just as the team came to her bedside to ask her her wishes, she had a few minutes of clarity. Just long enough to tell him that she wanted to live, even if it meant a difficult road ahead. And so they immediately... They began this new course of treatment, and through the grace of God, she did live. And her journey since it hasn't been easy, but she's back at school, and she's pursuing her dreams. Now, throughout this time, I've, I've never prayed more consistently or fervently. And I'm not saying that to brag or trying to take credit for anything that happened, because many, many people... We're praying for her. Many of you know exactly who I'm talking about. And I'm telling you that God used this experience to change me. 
See, in the beginning, I had this sense that it was going to be just the same old thing, another prayer for healing that goes unanswered. And then she got worse. But instead of quitting, I just felt so convicted. I wasn't going to leave God alone until it was resolved one way or the other. Now, the enemy came in. He told me, you shouldn't pester God. He said that I was being insolent. But his lies, they didn't affect me this time because I know that God is a God of healing. I knew that he loved her. I knew that he cared for me. And if he was going to call her home, well, I knew it was going to be okay. But I sure wasn't going to settle for that. And here's the truth of it. I have the right to plead with God because we're friends and that's my privilege. And if you're a friend of God, you have that privilege as well. God told us no when we asked him to heal her completely and I don't understand why or what his plan is. But I have no doubt in my mind that he spared her life in direct response to our fervent prayers for her. And our church, we've been forever changed because of this whole thing. When when all this was happening, the elders, we made a commitment to to meet together every Wednesday morning to pray. And and that call continues uh, on every single Wednesday with very, very rare exceptions. And And you can join us. There's a link on our website. It's at 8 a.m. Come, we will pray for you and with you. I know that God has a plan for everything, but in the words of R.C. Sproul, God not only ordains the ends, He also ordains the means. He determines that whatever shall come to pass, but He also determines that he will be moved by the fervent prayers of his people. So what is it that you do not have because you have not asked? My challenge with you is to wrestle with God a bit in prayer, like Moses did, like Abraham did, like Jacob did. Don't be disrespectful, but don't leave him alone until he gives you a clear answer. Draw near to him. He's your friend. And friendship with God has its privileges. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privileges that we have because you call us friend. Lord, I pray that we would seize on those privileges, that we would embrace them boldly. And Lord, I pray that you would change us in the process. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.